Let's turn in the scriptures to John chapter 18. John 18 is where we'll begin reading this morning. Throughout the past year, we've been studying the gospel according to John. And today we're reading two chapters, John 18 and 19. These two chapters, of course, focus on Jesus' suffering. Someone has said that all four of the Gospels are basically accounts of Jesus' suffering with really long introductions. I think that's right. This is the focus. This is where the whole Gospel has been moving. The Gospel, of course, is a message. It's news. It's the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is God become man, that he proved in multiple ways all throughout his life that he's God's appointed king who can rule forever on earth. That's the message of the gospel, knowing who Jesus is and what he did. Now, each one of the gospel writers emphasizes that this message needs to be responded to. And in one word, John's emphasis throughout his gospel is that you might believe that Jesus is God become man, the king to rule forever on earth, the one who is crucified, risen, and returning. That you would believe, that word believe is critical. You might use the the similar word faith. Believe. That's the way to respond to this message. And you say, well, what is believing? And throughout the scriptures and throughout history, it's been taught that faith has a couple critical components. First, before you can believe something, you must know something. Knowledge is critical. You have to know what the gospel message is before you can believe it. But knowing it is not enough. You also need to agree with it. You need to be convinced it's true. But even that's not enough. You can know it and you can say, I believe it's true. But James says you can be like the demons and you can know that Jesus is the son of God and still hate him. You can know it. You can agree with it, that it is true. But there comes this this next part that you have to personally rely on it. You have to turn from your own waywardness, from being your own authority, and you have to instead trust Jesus turning is called repentance and trusting Jesus is reliance personal reliance on him no one else can do it for you you must personally rely on Jesus and then John stresses especially in chapter 15 with that image of vine and branches that you must persevere so faith according to the Bible involves knowledge of the gospel agreement with the gospel being convinced it's true turning From your sin, it involves repentance, turning away from your own waywardness, being your own authority, and relying personally on Jesus, and it involves perseverance in that repentant faith. So faith involves knowledge, agreement, repentance, reliance, and perseverance. It's a quick summary of the Bible's teaching on faith. Is that how you've responded to the gospel? John has written this account so that you would respond to the news just like that. Now, this account is written from the perspective of an eyewitness. He's one of the men who lived with Jesus for at least three years. 
He wrote it a few decades after the events that he recounts. But John actually throughout gives some some evidence that he knows that other gospel accounts have been written and he is contributing his own distinctive eyewitness testimony. Not different, but supplementary and complementary. So for example, I didn't make a big deal of this when we were reading chapter 13, but it's interesting that just in chapter 13, verses 2, 3, and 4, John mentions that the disciples had supper with Jesus. That's like the whole focus of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Passover meal. But John barely touches on the supper, and he emphasizes that there at supper time, Jesus took a towel and got down and washed his disciples' feet. He's supplementing, complementing the accounts that have already been written. In what we read today, John 18 and 19, Jesus is supplementing the accounts that have been previously written. He's emphasizing several features that the other ones don't. The fact that before standing trial before Caiaphas, Jesus had an informal interview with Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas. That's distinctive to John. Or John goes into great detail about personal conversation that Jesus had with Pilate. While Pilate kept going out to the crowd and saying, this is what I've decided to do, and they respond, he goes back and has personal conversations with Jesus. John records that distinctively. John also records specific names like Malchus and Nicodemus, people who were involved in these events that no one else mentions. And he, of course, mentions specific statements from the cross that Jesus makes in that time of agony that no one else makes. John was an eyewitness. He's supplementing the other accounts with his own distinctive memories. Now, of course, John's focus all throughout this account is on what we read today. It's on Jesus's hour of greatest glory. So my sermon, if you want to title it, is just the king's hour of greatest glory. The king's hour of greatest glory. It's when Jesus is shown to be most awesome. The most awesome man who's ever lived, the most awesome king who's ever lived. This hour that we read about today is the hour, the very hour for which Jesus came to earth. Now, today's going to be a little different. It's going to be different in this way. I'm reading a lot of the Bible. In fact, most of the sermon is going to be Bible reading. I'm going to stop at a few points to give explanation, and and I hope it's going to be helpful. I do want to acknowledge at the outset that there is a commentary called The Gospel According to John written by D.A. Carson, Don Carson, about 60 pages on these two chapters that have influenced my life, changed my life. I've cried over some pages that Don Carson has written. Some of the things I mention, I don't even realize I'm probably depending on him. Some of them I'm going to mention my dependence on him. But uh, his commentary is just rich with explanation and clarification. And I am uh, maybe without or with realizing it dependent on him. But today I'm going to read mostly with occasional comment. And then at the very end, I'm going to make about a couple minutes, maybe three or five minutes of comments on our church and how we must never, ever, ever forget what we read today. John 18, starting in verse 1. 
when Jesus had spoken these words, he's referring to chapters 13 through 17, all the counsel and encouragement he gave his disciples. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden. This is an orchard of olive trees. That's where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there to that garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now the fact that Judas comes with so many soldiers is laughable. One scholar calls it total overkill. The fact that Judas enlisted the help of all of these soldiers also means that in the hours in which Jesus was counseling and encouraging the disciples whom he's about to leave, Judas is setting all of the trials in motion. The only way he would have been given bands of soldiers would have been if he had formally lodged some kind of legal complaint. So he has already set the trials in motion. But verse 4 indicates that even though Judas is coming with all of these soldiers with weapons, total overkill, Jesus is in total control. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to all these people who came to arrest him, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Double meaning. Cross out. I would recommend you cross out the he if it's in your translation because it is supplied by the translators. Many translations rightly indicate it in italics because it's been supplied by the translators. It's not in the original. Jesus said two words, I am. Jesus, in speaking those words, is not only saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the self-existent, unchanging, source of life, God. I am is the name of God going all the way back to Exodus 3.14. So Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, verse 6, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken in the previous chapter, John 17, 12. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's interesting that John does not take the time to record the healing of Malchus's ear like Luke does. Instead, he seems to assume that you've read the other accounts and you know that Jesus healed him as well. John's account is stressing four ways in which Jesus is in control. First, he knows 
everything that's about to happen to him. That's explicitly said in verse 4, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. He knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. Second, Jesus claims to be I am, the God who announced to Israel that he was going to rescue them through the Passover from their slavery in Egypt. Jesus is saying I am, and in fact, he is announcing that he is not only the God of the Passover, but that he's going to affect a much greater deliverance from slavery at the time of Passover. Third, when Jesus says, I am, you noted what happened. It says the, the soldiers fell, indicating that Jesus here spoke with the creator's voice, going all the way back to John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus was the one who spoke creation into existence. He's the one who in chapter 6, stills the storm with his voice. His voice speaks and creation happens and creation submits. Jesus is basically indicating, if I wanted to with my very word, I could take all of you out. Jesus is indicating, by contrast, that he is allowing himself to be arrested. And then fourth, he tells Peter not to fight. He's allowing all of this to happen. In other words, John, who was an eyewitness to these events, is saying Jesus of Nazareth is in total control of what's happening in, verse, in chapters 18 and 19. He's allowing himself to go through all this suffering. So, starting in verse 12, John continues to recount how Jesus stands trial before the Jews. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and their officers, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die rather than for all the people. That is recorded in John eleven fifty. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. That other disciple is a reference to the author John, whose family seems to have been the Zebedees, that was John's family. They seem to have been the fish business that provided fish to the house of the high priest, a high political home. But Peter stood outside at the door. So John, the other disciple, the one writing the account, now referring to himself in the third person, the one who was known to the high priest, he went out and he spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. And he brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said, so you're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now, it would have been really easy for Peter at this point to say, yeah, like John here, I'm, I'm following him. Don't, don't speak too much. You know, he could, have, he could have downplayed it, but instead Peter is scared. And right now he begins with a lie, an outright lie, to distance himself from the man he's convinced is God. Verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. 
I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. In other words, everyone knows what I've taught. I've not been two-faced. I've not said anything privately that I haven't said publicly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I've said. And Jesus here is pointing to standard procedure in Roman law that you examine witnesses, not the one who's on trial. Verse 22 says, When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If what I said is wrong, then expose the wrong. Bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why did you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas was like the high priest emeritus, and Caiaphas was actually one of five relatives who, over the course of the next generation, would sit in the place of high priest. Annas was a very influential man in first century Jerusalem. Now, verse 25, the scene shifts back to Peter. Now, Simon Peter was standing and still warming himself by that charcoal fire. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it for the third time, and at once a rooster crowed. Jesus has just stood trial before the Jews, and Peter has disavowed Jesus. And now Jesus is transferred from the Jewish court to the Roman court. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It's interesting here that John doesn't record any more about the confrontation with Caiaphas, which is what the others focus on. He simply tells us there in the middle of verse 28. It was early morning. Some suggest earlier than 6 a.m. They, the Jews, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but so that they could still enjoy the Passover ceremonies, the festivities. That is an ironic comment saying they were concerned about defilement when what they're doing is is sentencing the great I am to be crucified. And they're concerned about being clean? So Pilate, he was a Roman ruler who was in Jerusalem for the festivities. He went outside to them and said, what accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered, if this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves, judge him by your own law. The Jews said, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. One of the things you might note is that there's like a ping pong match going on between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. They hate each other. The Jews can't stand that Rome has authority over Jerusalem. And yet they have to, in order to kill Jesus, go through Pilate. Pilate can't stand the Jews he's over. He can't stand their laws. 
And he is actually right here trying to flex his political muscles to show how big he is and how much he hates them. So verse 33 says, Pilate again entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? That is the formal accusation of the Jews. Notice that when they come and bring Jesus before the Romans, their concern is not blasphemy. Their concern is treason. He is claiming to be king instead of Caesar. That's the only thing the Romans would have cared about. They wouldn't have cared about Jewish blasphemy laws. Verse 34, Jesus answered, Pilate, are you saying this of your own accord that I'm king? Or did others say it to you about me? Are you asking me personally or are you asking me legally? Pilate says, am I a Jew? In other words, do I care personally? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I'm a king, or like the NIV translates it, you're right in saying I'm a king. It's for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him dismissively, what is truth? John knows that Pilate's question right there is the most significant question in life. What is truth? What is truth? Hmm. After he said this, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate knew by this point that Jesus was not trying to lead an insurrection against Caesar's Roman rule. Pilate tries to appease the crowd, verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover feast. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. We would say he was a terrorist, a ringleader of terrorists. Chapter 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, with mockery, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. He's not a threat to Rome. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate had no idea what he was saying. Truly, this was the man. God become man. The man who could fix everything that Adam, the first man, had ruined. Jesus is the perfect man, the man who's going to rule on earth. Behold the man, bloodied, 
and mocked. Pilate, of course, presented Jesus to the crowd thinking that the mockery might lead them to, uh, to be satisfied and change their will for him to be crucified, and it didn't. When the chief priests, verse 6, and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews said, But we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. Here they bring up the charge of blasphemy, for which he was convicted in their courts. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, probably because Pilate was superstitious, like many Romans, like many Americans. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And by that, he's referring to Caiaphas and probably behind him, Annas, and behind him, Judas. These men in the plan of God were more responsible than Pilate. He was, as it were, almost passive in a, in a, in a bad situation. He's responsible, but not like these others. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, then you, Pilate, are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover festivities. It was about the sixth hour. It is mid to late morning now. He said to the Jews, scornfully, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, again, with scorn, You want me to crucify your king? And the chief priests, note that, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests! We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate capitulated, as one person said. He gave, them, he, he gave Jesus over to them to be crucified. That statement is incredible. We have no king but Caesar. As Don Carson explains, Israel was not just rejecting Jesus. They were rejecting their entire messianic hope that they would have a king coming. They were, in fact, rejecting God, who all throughout the Old Testament claimed to be the one who reigns, the one who rules, the one who is Israel's true king. The chief priests are rejecting Jesus, their scriptures, their God. And Jesus is crucified. So, verse 17 says, They took Jesus. He actually would undergo a second flogging, much worse than the first, that John does not record. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull. In Aramaic, Golgotha. We're more familiar with it by its Latin name, Calvary, the skull. And there they crucified him. 
with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather write, this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate responded, what I've written, I've written. Now, Pilate had asked Jesus earlier in the trial about why he's being tried. And Jesus said, because I give testimony to the truth. And Pilate said, what is truth? Most important question. Ironically, Pilate in three languages writes the truth. Jesus of Nazareth, king. King of the Jews, king. King of kings. And what a king. The announcement of the truth would be declared in three languages as the king is naked and bleeding. The hour of great glory. When the soldiers, verse 23, had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots for it. Let's draw straws. Let's play a little game to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which Psalm 22 says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In other words, John is saying this king went to this lowest of lows. He had his clothes taken from him. There's no king like this. So the soldiers did these things. But verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, a reference to himself as the author, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took Mary, the mother of Jesus, into his own home. Andreas Kostenberger explains helpfully that the reason Jesus entrusts Mary to John, Mary apparently is widowed by this point, is because her other sons didn't believe Jesus to this point. James, Jude would come to faith in Jesus after the resurrection, but they're not believers yet. Notice as well, Mary, Mary needed the care of the church. This is a strong contrast from many supposed Christians who say Mary is the mother of the church. No, Mary is cared for by the church. She was first entrusted to the disciple John. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture in Psalm 69, I thirst, and a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those words, it is finished, indicate that Jesus had had fulfilled everything his father gave him to do. He had obeyed his father's will to the end. About 200 years ago, Friedrich Krumacher commented on these words, it is finished, in his phenomenal book, The Suffering Savior, and he wrote, these are the greatest and most momentous words that were ever spoken on the earth since the beginning of the world. It is finished. At the very moment when, for the hero of Judah, all seems lost, his words declare that all is won, all is accomplished. The exclamation, it is finished, resounded in heaven and awoke hallelujahs to the Lamb which shall never again be mute. It will never be silent in heaven. Praises began, hallelujah, to the lamb slain who finished the work his father gave him to do. They've been going on for 2,000 years. They will never, ever stop. He finished the work his father gave him to do. And Krumacher goes on and says, but a more blissful sound on earth does not strike the ear of the penitent sinner to this hour than the words it is finished. It is the proclamation of eternal salvation. Yes, we're delivered. There's no longer any cause for anxiety except in the case of those who refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness and they turn their backs on the man of sorrows on the cross. You hear him say, it is finished. He has finished the salvation, the plan of salvation that God gave him to work out and he can now offer forgiveness to any who will come to him. He can now reconcile to God any rebel who will lay down their arms. He can bring into eternal life any condemned sinner who's sentenced to die if they will just approach God through Jesus, who declared the way of salvation is finished. The plan of God for providing a way for sinners to be reconciled to me, it's all fulfilled. Jesus shouts in victory, it's finished. And then John describes the deposition and burial. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. In other words, the Sabbath was particularly special because it was the Sabbath in the middle of the Passover week. The Jews asked Pilate, can we break the legs of these crucified men so that we can get rid of them quickly verse 32 so the soldiers came back and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead he gave up his spirit he died they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water In other words, there came out a thick, purplish substance as well as a clear, oily substance. And medical doctors debate on exactly what was coming out of him. But John says, verse 35, the one who saw it bears witness to it. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth so that you may believe. In other words, John will never forget the colors he saw coming out of that man. 
He was a firsthand eyewitness to the fact that Jesus actually died. The king died. And John would say that the blood of Jesus that he witnessed flow out of that man was his only hope for cleansing before God and reconciliation with God. John saying, I'm the one who saw it. I witnessed it. I can be trusted. Now, verse 36 just explains that these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He quotes Psalm 34, not one of his bones will be broken. That's a reference to God's king who will eventually be rescued from all his trials. In verse 37, another scripture was fulfilled, Zechariah 12. They'll look on him whom they have pierced. That is a reference to God's chosen shepherd who is going to be pierced. Jesus is buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. John records that in chapter 3. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In these two chapters that we just read, John portrays Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as the great I am. He is the son of God the Father. Jesus proves himself to be God's shepherd. He's the Passover lamb whose death would function as the substitute for his people. And John, with masterful skill with language, presents Jesus as the man. Behold the man. The truth. What is truth? And as the king. And yet, what is most striking of all is when Jesus is putting on full display his glory as God become man. Shepherd who dies like the lamb. King who gives himself to be crucified for those he'll reign over. When he is presenting Jesus in all of his glory, he is emphasizing that he doesn't have one ounce of clothing and he is bloodied from head to side to foot. The king in all his glory, bloodied and naked. Jesus is a king like no other. The point of John 18 and 19 is that John was an eyewitness of Jesus in his greatest hour of glory. The king voluntarily, willingly died in shame to offer salvation to all who'd follow him. He can forgive, cleanse, reconcile with God, give eternal life to all 
who will submit themselves to him, turn from being their own authority and say, Jesus, be my Lord, be my Savior, I need you. This is where I wrap up. Dry County, it's 23 years that we celebrate today, 23 years of meeting publicly, week in and week out. What we read today explains better than any other portion of Scripture why we exist, why we keep meeting, why we keep singing songs, why we keep gathering and keep committed to one another. In Tri-County, we can never, ever, ever move past the facts of John 18 and 19 that Jesus the King voluntarily died for those who would follow him. Gathering as a church is very hard. We go through periods of our lives when it's easy. But if you're with the church of Jesus, the true church of Jesus, for any length of time, it is downright agonizing. You deal with people who fall away. Deal with people who wrestle with doubts. Some of you may, right now, be doubting. Let me urge you to keep going back to the eyewitness's testimony, which is true. The man who wrote this saw it with his very eyes. Don't move on from this record. Some of you have experienced failures in church leadership. You've experienced failures in church leadership. Some of you have been pastored by a Judas who walks away from Jesus. Some of you have been pastored by a Peter who goes through a tragic time of backsliding. It could be, Tri-County, that in years ahead, one of the leaders at Tri-County is like that. God forbid I could be like that. I know my own weakness. I'm human. God, I pray, gives me endurance and perseverance, but I know how weak and frail I can be. You do not follow Jesus because Judas follows Jesus. And you do not follow Jesus because Peter follows Jesus. Right? You follow Jesus because he's the crucified king. Right? In years ahead... Our congregation may experience massive growth. The congregation that met just a few yards from where Jesus was crucified on this occasion eventually had over 5,000 people, just a few years. Massive growth. Our congregation could experience heavy persecution. If you read certain parts of the Bible, you could be put in prison. That's not unthinkable in the next few decades. We could face heavy persecution. 
our congregation could face apathetic coldness. One of the congregations that John, this very writer, was involved in was the church at Ephesus, who 50 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus had grown cold in its love for the Lord. Our congregation could get cold. We could grow apathetic. In fact, our congregation could experience all three of these. Massive growth, heavy persecution, apathetic coldness. What's going to keep us on track? What's going to keep us on track? If we never get far from the charcoal fire and remember Jesus, the one standing trial, is the king. We're going to stay on track if we never get too far from that stone pavement where the crowd was gathered and heard, Behold the man. What do you want me to do with your king? We're going to stay on track if we never forget, never get far from that little hill where John witnessed a spear go through the side of Jesus of Nazareth and he witnessed the deep purple and clear fluids come out. We will stay on track if we never lose sight of the king who at his moment of greatest glory gave himself for us. We follow Jesus because of Jesus. Because the testimony written about him is true. Let's pray.